Hey guys, and welcome back to Karate Over Coffee. We've got part three of, of a four-part series with Joe Swift just about to kick off. Now, if uh, the audio is a little bit uh, dodgy, it's not as good as, as the current one, so I apologize for that one. But it was recorded last year during our the COVID lockdown. So make sure you jump in and have a, have a listen to one and two. If you haven't already, we can just go straight into part three. And don't forget to hit subscribe. We've also got a brand new shop called karateovercoffeeshop.com. So karateovercoffeeshop.com. We've got mugs. If, you're, if you can see me on YouTube, you can see my cool new mug that I've got uh, I actually already drank my coffee out of, but um, we make sure you jump on there and have a look. Um, and if you have any questions, let me know. We've got some really cool feedback and, and a lot of uh, questions and, and positive um, suggestions as well. So also check out our Karate Over Coffee community Facebook group if you haven't jumped on there as well. But otherwise, sit back, relax and get stuck into it. See you later. Hey guys, it's Shane from the Australian Credit Academy in Brisbane, uh, here with Joe Swift again. So uh, we caught up a couple of months ago uh, during a crazy lockdown. Everything sort of started to ease up where, where I am and where Joe is. Uh, however, I still can't catch up for a beer in person, so we thought we'd do another discussion um, with uh, having a beer as well. Um, that's it. So, um, yeah, so today we're going to uh, have a quick chat. Well, you know, it's a long chat, but about um, <laughs> the Chinese, Chinese influence into the UQ martial arts. Um, so Joe's got some slides as well and uh, a lot of knowledge. Take it away, buddy. Well, a uh, little bit of knowledge and a couple of simple slides. Um, let me see how to share this thing. Here. How's this? Seeing my screen? Okay. Um, uh, the last time we got together, we spoke more about the mainland Japanese Koryu influence uh, on the uh, martial arts of Okinawa, which may have left uh, a bit of a bitter taste in some people's mouths. Uh, but uh, I think we can uh, safely assume that the origin of the karate kata themselves, uh, i.e. the concept of a solo kata uh, as an empty hand martial art, uh, was imported from China, as evidenced by the kanji that they used to use to represent karate. Right? Uh, we'll have some more on the kanji in a couple seconds. But uh, anyway, um, the romantic... Uh, creation myths, we'll call them, of a lot of styles talk about the founder moving to China and staying there for 25 years and learning from uh, Master Pai Mei on the top of the mountain uh, and coming back with a certificate of full proficiency and mastership in uh, blah, 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 crane boxing. And then they taught in Okinawa. Uh, Recent research into actual travels of Okinawans to China 
kind of refute that. Uh, and a lot of the people who were actually traveling to China in the official capacity uh, were aristocrats who were sent to be bureaucrats. So what I mean by that is uh, in China, okay, let me rewind a, a couple hundred years here. Yeah. Uh, political political uh, relations between Ryukyu and China were normalized in 1392, uh, which is also the year that China sent the infamous 36 families from uh, Fujian province to Okinawa, where they settled and created an establishment called Kume Village. Uh, Kume Village is on the out, or it was, sorry, on the outskirts of Naha. Yeah. Uh, and it was kind of like the Chinatown of Okinawa. Were they sent and, all at the same time, or were they? Or was no, it, it, was, it, it was immigrants. Uh, uh, they immigrated to Okinawa and they s established a Chinatown. Uh, and so after the initial wave of immigrants, of course, you still have people coming in. Uh, but uh, you will now have, uh, you know, families of ethnic Chinese who were born and raised in Okinawa. So they're, uh, how would you call that in, in today's day? They're, they're uh, bicultural, right? So they got the best of both. Uh, and for a long time, from the 1300s all the way until the very late 1700s, I think it was 1798, uh, the people of Kume were those who were in charge of the political relations with China and trade with China. So, you know, uh, a lot of uh, the court interpreters between Chinese and Okinawan or Chinese and Japanese uh, in the Ryukyu Kingdom were actually from Kume or educated in Kume. So they could speak fluent Chinese and fluent whatever language was spoken in the court of Shuri, which was uh, the Shuri dialect of Okinawan, which is basically ancient Japanese. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, that uh, being a part of it, uh, you have from Kume to China, what they call the government-sponsored uh, exchange students. So every uh, few years, uh, a couple of people were chosen from Kume to be sent on the government dime to study politics in Beijing. Right, so uh, what happens is uh, you get on the boat from Naha and you travel almost due west to Fujian. Uh, when you arrive in Fujian, uh, you spend some time in the Ryukyukan, which is kind of uh, the Okinawan embassy to China right, uh, during those days. Then uh, you make your way up to Beijing uh, with your revenue, uh, revenue, uh, your entourage for you of, uh, you know, assistants and bodyguards and local Chinese guys and all that. Uh, and so if you were chosen by the government to be a student in China, A, you were most likely ethnic Chinese from Kume, and you were sent to study politics, right? yep. uh, not martial arts. Yep. Uh, 
outside of that, there was also the uh, people who were sent to work in the Ryukyu Gun, uh, the Okinawan Embassy to China. Uh, and they were sent, you know, to be bureaucrats. Right, so once they got to China, they were there for, I think, like the standard tour of duty was a year or so. Uh, or maybe a year and a half. Uh, I have to look that up exactly, but uh, you weren't there for very long. Uh, outside of that, not a whole lot of people were actually allowed to go to China. Uh, at least until the Meiji era of Japanese history, uh, when Okinawa was formally brought in as a prefecture of Japan, and official ties with China were cut. Uh, once that happened, uh, most of the people who went to China were anti-Japanese, pro-Chinese, uh, alt-right, I guess you would call them in this day and age, uh, mm -hmm. Okinawans, uh, who went and settled in the Ryukyukan, and basically uh, they were, the official story is that they were going to try and elicit Chinese help to defeat the Japanese. Uh, but by that time, the Qing Dynasty, uh, sometimes mispronounced as Qing, Q-I-N-G, Qing Dynasty of China, was also on the way down. Of course, you had the Opium Wars, you had the Boxer Rebellion, uh, and all of these external factors that kind of uh, was usurping the power from the Chinese government. So China was in no real position to come and help. Uh, so I, would, I imagine that it's a bunch of... Uh, uh, far-right ultra-nationalist Okinawans who ran to China to avoid conscription in the Japanese Imperial Army and they gathered in the Ryukyukan and just you know bided their time yeah and then eventually they came back to Okinawa so uh, within that uh, overall arching history of who actually was able to go to China and we're talking pre-Meiji, right? So before Uechi Kanbun, before Higaona Kanbyo, these guys, uh, who was actually going to China was students who were going to study politics in Beijing and their entourage. And you have your aristocrats who were being sent to work in the embassy as a bureaucrat. And maybe you had your random merchant, uh, but they were busy selling and buying things. Yep. So, uh, within that, uh, where do you get the Chinese martial arts influence? And uh, above and beyond that, why would you need it? I guess is the, the mo two most uh, important questions. Yep. Uh, the first thing that we need to understand is that uh, when you go to China from uh, Okinawa and you're stationed in the Ryukyukan, uh, where was the Ryukyukan in relation to the rest of Beijing? Uh, Fujian. Uh, this is a little bit of a map, uh, very stylized and probably not to scale, but this is a little bit of a map. Uh, what you have here is you have a bunch of like a river system here, like rivers and canals uh, leading out to the ocean for uh, trade. You have your main city gates leading into the city of Fuzhou. And outside of the gates and on the other side of the river, you have the Ryukyukan. Right, so uh, you're not within the city proper, 
you're on the outskirts. And from what I gather from uh, reading uh, both period documents and research uh, into it, was that uh, being a foreign country, an embassy of a foreign country, not only uh, was the Ryukyuan compound outside, but all of the others like Korea, Africa, all of the others had like compounds outside of the city walls. Mm. And the foreigners were not allowed into the city without special permission. Right now, uh, from there, how do you find a Kung Fu master? Mm. Right, uh, is a very important question. Okay. Uh, the local Okinawans were allowed outside of the walls of the Ryukyukan during the daytime, but without special permission, they couldn't really enter the city proper. There may have been special permission given to like merchants and the like, but mm. also uh, we know from a a uh, document from the 1700s uh, in which a Satsuma uh, scholar was uh, gathering information on the Ryukyu kingdom. We know that there was a strict curfew of Okinawans to be back within the compound walls of sunset. So uh, if you're a merchant and you do have special permission to go into the, into the city and sell your wares, you're busy selling your stuff but you have to be back by sunset. If you're a bureaucrat, you're working all day, right? And after work, you can't go into the city because it's dark. Right. Uh, so, uh, strict, uh, so within those uh, highly restrictive constraints, how do you find a Kung Fu master? Right. Uh, so these are the things that, uh, keep me awake at night and uh, you know prevent me from furthering myself in my career uh, as a meteorologist because I'm always thinking about this stuff but uh, yeah. uh, so within that particular confines uh, I want to take a quick look at what the the compound of the Ryukyukan looked like back in the day uh, so you should be seeing a new uh, uh, screen here right uh, this is a kind of a stylistic uh, uh, map or layout of the, the Ryukyukan, right? Uh, so your main gate is here, right? So you go into the main gate. Uh, this big building here in the middle on the horizontal, mm -hmm. this is like the main uh, government office building. Yep. So you have your main building where the government offices are, and then you have uh, like an annex building. It's not actually annexed, but what would we call an annex, like, like an extra building. Yep. And this is uh, during part of the uh, history anyway, served as a kind of warehouse for tributary goods to the Chinese government that the students uh, uh, brought uh, to then take up to Beijing. Now, here's the two main government offices. Uh, on the sides of the, uh, the minor or the annex uh, building here, this is your dormitory for your Okinawan bureaucrats and your uh, students who are waiting their trip up to Beijing. Then uh, here you have dormitories for your sailors and your ship's crew 
who brought the bureaucrats and the government officials and the students over, right? Yep. So this is like the main compound for the Okinawans. Then you kind of go through a little bit of a gate. You have a couple more dormitories for like ship crews because there are like a lot of people to man a ship. Now the most interesting part for us is what was just on top of that. These two here are dormitories for Chinese soldiers who were assigned to protect the Dukyuka. Ah, to protect or to monitor? To protect. Okay. And it was paid for by the Chinese government. Then uh, you have your, a little bit of another gate, then you have dormitories here for your Chinese scholars, your Chinese bureaucrats who are also working within the Dukyukan compound. And they were probably more of the monitors. Uh, so within the walls, you have your Okinawan contingency. Then you have your Chinese bureaucrats. And for us, the most important thing is the Chinese soldiers. Yeah. Right. Uh, the Chinese soldiers, uh, at least according to the research of a man named Iha Fuyu, who is known as the, uh, the father of modern Okinawan studies, uh, he wrote a couple of forewords for Funakoshi's books and uh, wrote a couple of articles that mentioned Funakoshi and Karate and all that. So he was around back in the you know, 20s and 30s. Uh, according to his research, uh, the protectors, the military protectors of the Ryukyukon was a uh, kind of military regiment called the Green Standards Army. Right. Uh, the Green Standards Army uh, was actually a mainly Han Chinese, but they also had some Manchus and some, uh, uh, some uh, Muslim Chinese uh, contingencies in it, depending on the region they are. Uh, but basically, uh, it was formed from the uh, ex-soldiers of the Ming uh, commanders who were defeated by the Qing dynasty. And then uh, they were hired by the Qing to become uh, an army. Right? Uh, so we're talking like really old uh, ancient Chinese history. Not ancient, but you know, medieval Chinese history. Uh, and this Green Standards Army... Uh, they had, you know, regiments throughout China. Uh, so that was one of the two main uh, Chinese armies uh, at the time. Uh, the other one being the Eight Banners Army, which is more of a Manchurian uh, platoon. Uh, and that was more in the north. Right. Yeah. Uh, so uh, your Green Standard Army guys are here. So they're army guys. Uh, once the Qing took complete power and there was no more real civil war in China... Uh, they also acted as the uh, country's kind of a uh, peacekeeping force, so your law enforcement, uh, police, etc. Uh, the Green Standard Army uh, had a green flag like this, hence the name, the Green Standard Army. Standard meaning a flag, right? so uh, your military flag, like the standard bearer, uh, those guys, and. Uh, so basically, uh, these guys were in charge of uh, the the Fujian Regiment of the Green Sanders Army sent soldiers on the government's command to protect the Ryukyukan. Right. So security. Now, 
if you are in the Ryukyukan, right, and you're stuck in there all day for work, and you can't go out at night, mm. who are you going to learn Kung Fu from? Yeah. And the answer is Bob the security guard. Yeah. Uh, because in those days, uh, the, of course, uh, most conflict was armed. So you had your, your archers, you had your musket men, then you had your spearmen, then you had your like cavalry and all of that. Um, mm. But because this is uh, well before uh, the Boxer Rebellion, when uh, sentiment turned against traditional Chinese martial arts in China, uh, a lot of the uh, Chinese troops through their basic training, learned rudimentary empty hand martial arts. As with every single military ever in the entire history of mankind. Right. Mm. So, uh, you got your guy. Your guys come across, they're working in the thing. They, be they befriend Bob the security guard. And they see Bob the security guard and his friend Frank and his, their pal Johnny uh, doing these funny looking things in the corner. This, this, of course, is supposition, this part. But. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of times, because you're on a, a member of the Shuri Gent, of the, the Kume, and later the Shuri Gentry, uh, you already have uh, a little bit of martial arts training in Okinawa. Uh, especially if you're in the employ of the king and you received a sword, mm. Japanese sword. So you learn Jigenyu and all that, right? Past 1609, well, 1614 to be, I think, more exact, uh, the law imposed by the Satsuma on the Okinawans was that you can't take your weapons outside of your house, mm. although you can have them and you can practice with them. And in fact, we'll teach you how to use them, but you couldn't carry them outside of your house. Yeah. Right? Uh, and say that uh, you are after your stint in the Ryukyukan, you know that you're going to be assigned to guard the castle. Or you're going to be assigned to guard the king. Or something like this. Right? You're probably going to need some kind of not a weaponless martial arts training mm -hmm. so that you can negotiate not only grappling range, which is where most uh, traditional martial arts, I believe, started from, because if you're outside of grappling range, draw your sword and cut the guy down. Bing, bing, bong. Right? Both in Japan and China. Yeah. But if you don't have a sword and you need to negotiate the middle to longer range without a weapon, how do you do that? Yeah. And so you see these guys looking, doing these funny looking moves in the corner. You say, hey, that looks interesting. Can I learn that? And then you learn a form that they call three battles, right? Or you learn a form that they call 13 steps. You learn mm. a form that they call the 54 mothers or 54 steps, right? Yeah. Uh, and then you go back to Okinawa with this new funny looking, you know, empty hand exercise. Yep. But when you are learning from the Chinese guys, Probably they didn't teach you a lot of applications because they should be self-evident that if you're a military man, 
and you're resorting to empty hand martial arts that you dropped your sword and it's going to be a grappling situation on the battlefield. Mm. When you get back to Okinawa, you say, that's all well and fine, but why would I, as a castle guard, wait for the guy to come and grab me before I can use this stuff? Yep. Right. And so you say, well, I know how to negotiate this mid to long range with a two and a half foot razor blade. Yeah. Why can't I reinterpret these battlefield wrestling maneuvers into middle to long range striking maneuvers mm. at the outset of the battle or, or, or the fight or the, the, the situation? And from there, once that initial clash is done, now you're within grappling range and the rest of the kata starts to make sense. Yep. Uh, went off on a lot of supposition and, and uh, hypotheses there, but uh, uh, this makes more logistical sense as to the Chinese origins of, Okin of Okinawan martial arts from the point of view of Okinawans who went to China. Rather than staying for 25 years and learning from Pai Mei on the mountain, the uh, what is it? The five-step exploding palm, uh, exploding heart palm technique. Yeah, I've been studying uh, that. Though, but, uh... Yeah, I, I I prefer the uh, the five-step five beer drinking technique, but uh, but um, bum, <laughs> you do the uh, exploding heart there too. So yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Or at least a couple of brain, uh, uh, blood vessels in your brain, right? <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, so this is one, one of the, the things, right? Bing, bing, boom. So uh, if all of this hypothesis is true, as I hear, why is my screen not going? There you go. Oh, went too far. Okay, Green Center's army. So I'm uh, going to jump, jump around a little bit in the, the discussion here. And we're going to go to uh, a linguistic lesson. Guess what that is? Uh, is it karate? It's karate or tode. Right. Now, instead of me telling everybody what it means, I'm going to do this. And I'm going to jump to a link. Let me share this other screen here. Sorry. Okay. Jisho.org is a, a Japanese dictionary online. Right? So here we see a kanji. Mm. Here, here, here. Okay. Now, for those who cannot read hiragana and katakana, let me tell you what it is. This one up here, the word is this kanji and it's pronounced kara, kara, okay? Noun or prefix. China, sometimes you also use a reference to Korea or other foreign countries, okay? Down here, same kanji pronounced to, refers to the Tang Dynasty or China slash foreign country. Mm -hmm. Uh, for our purposes, actually, let me show something interesting. If I go down here, 
and I find this word says karate, it said, other forms, that kanji. Hey, bing, bing, bong. So anyway, if we are looking at this from the historical point of view of the guys in Okinawa speaking the local dialect of Shuri, this kanji would most likely be pronounced to or to. Yep. Right? To or to. Okay. So we've established what this kanji actually means. China or Korea or other foreign countries in some cases. Or according to Wikipedia, the Han state. Right? Uh, and then as To is the Tang dynasty or China slash foreign country. Okay. So we've established what this kanji means. Mm. Let me go back to the other. Uh, let me know when you can, if my screen switch over to the other. Has it? Yep. yep. Okay. Let me click on this one. Going to the same jisho.org, we have the word or the kanji, te. Yep. And you have 15 definitions of one kanji. Yeah. The one that everybody always assumes that it means because it's the one that's in all of the Japanese to English dictionaries is definition number one, hand or arm. Right? So, karate, empty hand. Okinawa te, Okinawan hand. Toude, Chinese hand. But does hand make sense when you're talking about the piece of your arm past the wrist to the fingertips? Right? Yeah. There's a four paw or four leg animals, right? Same thing. A handle, right? A worker, somebody who helps out at the office, right? Effort or trouble. The one that we're interested in, yeah, in this particular uh, uh, thing, is definition number six: a means, a way, a trick, a move, a technique, workmanship. Yeah. I hit upon a good idea. Or 13, a move, as in like chess. A movement, a move, right? So if we look at this kanji with definition number six as a way, a technique, a skill, how to do something. Mm. And we know that te in the Okinawan dialect in some contexts represents martial skills, martial arts, mm. and we combine these two kanji, it no longer becomes Chinese hand, which means, you know, it sounds like you're doing an autopsy on, on somebody from China, and you take off their hand. Small hands in China. But now it says, but now it says, Chinese, contextually speaking, martial arts. Right? Yeah. I know that this is probably going to be viewed as semantics or, you know, getting into really the small, the fine print on the contract and everything, but I think it's very important that mm -hmm. if you're going to be translating something, that you give the context and not just the most common meaning of the kanji that you found, the first one you find in the dictionary. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, 
Chinese martial arts. Right. Uh, I had to go through there. So, so you had your guys go to China. They're stuck on campus. They have access to soldiers of the Green Standards Army who teach them some Chinese martial arts. Yep. And most likely, you're going to be interested in the empty hand martial arts, not like the big, you know, uh, nine meter long spears and, and like bows and arrows and like mounted archery and all of that. But you would be yep. interested in the empty hand part. So you learn a couple of rudimentary Kung Fu forms. Yep. Right? And then you take it back to China. Now, because you are learning from the soldiers who stay here, Green Standards Army, Chinese martial arts, you are most likely learning a military martial art and not a form of civilian self-defense. Mm. Right. And if you're learning a military martial art and not a civilian form of self-defense, uh, the main thrust of the studies will be something you can learn in a relatively short manner of time and become technically proficient in and something that's not going to take you nine to ten strikes to knock the guy down with so yeah. we're looking at uh uh less of a subdual subduance subdual submission there you go yep. and more of a kill the guy quick pick up his sword then go back and join the battle Uh, so, and we're talking, of course, before the late 1860s, early 1870s, before the Meiji period. So we're talking about the era of Tode Sakugawa. Tode Sakugawa, right? Why was he called Tode Sakugawa? Well, because he went to China and he learned all this cool stuff and he brought it back. Yep. Hence, he was called... Sakugawa, the master of Chinese martial arts. Bing, bing, bong. Right? Simple enough. Uh, we do know that at least in the mid-1700s, there is a written record of a Chinese martial artist in Okinawa who did a demonstration. Yep. You've heard of the, the kata called Kosokun. Yes. Kushanku, Kusanku, Kanku Dai. Right? Yep. The Chinese martial artists most often associated with that kata based on some archaic kanji in an old book. Uh, was It was written in 1762 in a book called the Oshima Hiki, which was a collection of interviews of a shipwrecked Okinawan ship off the shores of Tosa, which is in Shikoku, which is one of the main four islands in Japan. The ship was on the way to Satsuma in uh, 1762, blown off course in a storm, and they became marooned in Tosa. And the Confucian scholar slash bureaucrat slash samurai, uh, Tobe Ryoen, was dispatched by the Tosa castle to go interview all these guys and write down what he learned. Right? Because most likely 
uh, guys in Shikoku and Tosa didn't, had never met a Ryukyuan. There are lots of Ryukyuans in Satsuma, lots of them coming through Osaka, a few coming up into uh, Edo, uh, Tokyo, on the way up uh, to pay their respects to the Shogun, uh, but not in the other provinces of Japan. So he came off this big book called the Oshima Hiki, and in there he interviewed a guy named Shio Hira Peiji. And Shio Hira Peijing said, paraphrasing, a few years ago, most likely 1756, which was when one of the Sapushi uh, Chinese envoys came to Okinawa to coronate the king, uh, a master of Kumi Aijutsu, which uh, is a Japanese word represents grappling, and in parentheses, Tobe writes, most likely Chinese boxing as outlined in the Bubishi, but not that Bubishi, the other one. Yeah. Right? The big, you know, multi uh, volume military tome uh, had uh, like one chapter that showed a, a rudimentary kung fu form. Anyway, brought a bunch of students and he showed a technique in which the guy grabbed him by the lapel and he took him down with a kind of scissoring leg technique. So okay. uh, this guy, and by the way, the kanji that is often associated with the kusanku kata is written in the Oshima Hiki. So this guy named Kusanku, in parentheses by Tobe, most likely his title, right? Not a name, mm -hmm. uh, showed a wrestling move. So probably by that time, there were portions of the Ryukyuan aristocracy who were, who had started to notice Chinese boxing and Chinese martial arts as a possible adjunct to their weapons training that they were getting with the sword and their jujitsu training, which is probably an adjunct to the swordsmanship and the, the naginata and all that that they're learning. Yeah. Uh, of course, you probably had Chinese boxing in Okinawa through Kume Village already. Uh, but apparently it never really crossed the minds of the, the shooty guys to learn it. Until they realized that, hey, wait, we can't carry our weapons anymore. Now what? Mm. So uh, the, the weapons ban, I do that in you know quotes here, weapons ban uh, didn't really was not really the main emphasis for the uh, development of karate, but more, it was just one of the, the background aspects of why people started looking into martial arts, anti-hand martial arts. Well, that was part three of a four-part series talking with Joe Swift. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, go back and listen to it, make notes. There's many things to sit there and, and really think about. Uh, obviously, we've got part four coming up very shortly as well, so stay tuned for that. Until then, I'll speak to you next week.